Welcome back to I Was Hornswoggled, a podcast journey about waking up from a narcissist-induced nightmare. This is episode 27, and we're going to be discussing idealization and evaluation. Today's date is October 11th, 2022. And greetings to you. Welcome to my podcast journal where I share my awakening from my narcissist-induced nightmare. Hornswoggled means to trick or deceive someone. And I have definitely been tricked and deceived. And uh, the, the most egregious trickery came from my own mother who for 20 plus years, you know, uh, hornswoggled me. <laughs> I later had found in, uh, that she was a covert narcissist. And once I figured out what that was, it explained everything I had ever experienced in my life and why uh, my life was being assaulted from the outside behind my back because they are tricksters. The content that I share in my shows, I have found to be ex- you know, definitely helpful. So I like to share them in my shows along with my own experiences. And now I've also added a twist of sharing others' experiences off from um, different forums on the internet so that it's, you know, you we all learn from each other. That's the whole point. So this podcast is meant to share my personal experience and information that I have found helpful. And I also list the sources so you can check them out on your own and read them further. And I also share my feelings as I unpack the huge blow. So it's a day-by-day scenario. If you've ever have been a victim of narcissistic abuse, you know that this is constantly um, something that you're growing from and hopefully growing through and hopefully peeling back day by day and making sense of the crazy nightmare that you just woke up from. And if you have a story of your own that you would like to share, you can email the show at Iwashornswoggled at gmail.com. You can tweet the show on Twitter at Hornswogglepod on Twitter. And you can head to Hornswogglepodcast.com to leave a voicemail message find the show notes, and listen to past episodes. So let's dive into Making Sense, where we will unpack the concept of idealization and evaluation. All right, so we're going to make sense of the concept of idealization and evaluation And my own understanding about this is about like where loved ones can be made into objects by a narcissist by depriving them of their ability to feel emotions that are differently from his or her own. So like narcissists cannot tolerate that you have your own dynamic buildup as an individual, as a person, as a human being. You are a flat character in their story. You are the sidekick to their 
hero. You are in the sidecar to their motorcycle. Like you are just playing a supporting role and it would be perfect. You would be a perfect person if only you would shut up and not have your own mouth and thoughts and opinions and just let them lift up the top of your noggin and throw in whatever they feel like throwing in and and they will hand you a script and those are the only words you're allowed to say. Like this is exactly how narcissists love to treat people. But they know that you're not going to buy into that right away. So they do all their other little tricks like hoovering and love bombing and be absolutely sweet and nice to you. So you will never suspect them. Never. Definitely the coverts. Because they know that you will, you know, catch more, more um, willing victims oh, through kindness. Because there's only a certain part of the population who would, who loves to be, you know, treated like crap and they will stick around to be treated like crap, you know. So they also, um, idealization and evaluation are actually two unconscious defense mechanisms that narcissists use to treat their loved ones as either good or awful. So it's not like it's um, a premeditated, like I'm going to wake up and I'm going to idealize and devalue someone today. It's like baked into their operating system. You know, we have Android operating systems and Apple operating systems and we have NPD operating systems, the narcissist personality disorder, which will make people do stuff like like this because it is how they have learned to handle people. And um, so narcissists also can manipulate and control others by relating to loved ones as either good or evil things. You are on the bus or off the bus. You are, it's very black and white. There is no room for gray. And you'll notice this out into the world where you will run into sections of the population where you either believe what they believe or you're trash, right? I think that um, the deeper we get into different pockets of society, you will find this thought process where you are either good or evil. That's it. There's no wiggle room for you and they will treat you accordingly. They will, you know, ostracize you, belittle you, hurt you, demean you, do smear campaigns um, against you. If you don't say what they think you are supposed to say, and if you even veer off from the script, you're not allowed to exist anymore. They're very cutthroat. And we definitely see a lot more of that as time goes on. Also, depending on how the narcissist is fulfilled, a person can go from being adored to devalued in a narcissist perspective in an instant. And being the daughter of a narcissist or narcissists, and the verdict, like I always say, is still out of my dad. I don't know if he, I don't know. He, there's a lot because I spent so much time with my mom and because my dad, now this is what I laugh about it because it makes sense why he stayed on second shift for like my entire life and uh, why he would work any amount of overtime. And part of me goes, it's because he, he did not want to be home with my narcissist mother. And can I blame him? Nope. Can't blame him. I, but the part of me as the daughter of one, I do blame him because I'm like, dude, <laughs> you shipped us out. You you let us be like hostages. We lived in a hostage situation at my home growing up, not knowing if our mother would, you know, hate or love you from one day to the next. And 
in past episodes, I've also mentioned this, but before we get into my experience with uh, the idealization and devaluation of a narcissist, let's dive deeper. And this is, I'm going to pull from psychologytoday.com in an article by Aaron Leonard, PhD, and they go um, further into discussing Melanie Klein's object relations theory, as well as their own information about idealization and devaluation. So the article starts by saying, applying the knowledge from Melanie Klein's object relations theory may be useful when dealing with a narcissist. Often a person with strong narcissistic tendencies relates to the people closest to them more as objects than human beings. A narcissist primarily fixes on his or her own feelings. So he or she often neglects to contemplate how others may feel. This egocentric perspective hinders the narcissist from resonating with a feeling that differs from his or her experience. Negating a person's emotions is the context of an interpersonal relationship. It is one way a narcissist dehumanizes loved ones. And the dehumanizing is a very, um, it is a very perfect word to describe that because like I was alluding to earlier, they don't see you as a human. You are a flat character in a story. When you read a story, there's normally the main character and you know the main character's thoughts, their likes, their dislikes, their internal dialogue. And then you have the other characters in the story where you don't really know what they're thinking. You don't really know what they like. You just see them as a flat character, like a supporting role in a movie. That's how narcissists tend to treat everyone around them. They're the main character. They're the superhero. You're either a villain or you're a sidekick. That's it. And they don't really care to get to know you on a deeper level. So which is also kind of a telling thing. Have you ever met someone who literally never asks you about you or what you like or anything? Now, don't get me wrong, they will bait you. They will go, how are you? Knowing that an average NPC person in their head, you're just an NPC, they're the main story person. Um, they will ask you like cliche things like that to bait you into returning the favor. So when you go, if you go, oh, I'm doing good, how are you? Oh, get ready, get ready. Because they will unpack an entire suitcase have you ever been in like a, a store and the cashier goes, how are you today? And you go, I'm doing good. And there, and you go, well, how are you? And they go, oh, let me tell you how I am. And then they sit, they stop ringing up your groceries. There's a line forming behind you and they don't care because you have done the thing they wanted you to do. They baited you into saying, how are you? So then they could go on and rant about their grandkids, how they never come to see them how their, their, their kids are crap humans and how you're stuck working a cashier job because you have to pay for their sports equipment or, you know, it's just, it's, it's just off the, off the chain. And you're just hearing every, every dirty detail of their life about every person in their life. And you're just sitting there going, what did I do? What did I do? Why did I ask this? 
And um, I've found that an easy way to like go around it is to be like, so I'd be like, I'm okay. How are you? You'd be like, I'm doing good. Thank you so much for asking. I hope you're having, you know, a good day too, blah, blah, Or I hope your, your day is good too. So it's like, it's a, it's a catch 22, you know, give them a 50, 50 chance. But when you just go 100 and go, Hey, how's your day going? They're like, let me tell you how my day is going. And they literally don't care if you're having a bad day. You didn't want to dump all of your dirty laundry on their lap. You just met them. They're just supposed to, you know, do your thing. Say, say, the average person, if they're having a bad day, they'll say something like, oh, I wish it could be better. Or, oh, I complain, but it wouldn't matter. You know, like there's a certain element of social acceptability of going into actually answering that question, especially if you're in at a, at a job, if you're working and you're in customer service, the person who returns your how are you today doesn't necessarily want your life story, you know, but the narcissist goes, oh, prime, prime event time. I'm going to, I'm just going to lay it out there and just dump all of my dirty laundry right here in this person's lap because they asked me how my day was going. And that also means how's my life going, you know? So yeah, it's a very tricky scenario. They bait you in really easily by appearing to care when in reality, the end goal is just to get you to reciprocate, to mirror the question. So then they can dump on you, right? So one, they look like they care about you because they're asking, but in reality, they're just waiting for the payback. You know, it's a means to an end for them. Oh, I got to put in a little bit so I can, you know, extract even more. So it's tricky, super tricky. Also, they go on to say that the narcissist's lack of empathy is apparent in relationships that are supposed to be close and less obvious in relationships with acquaintances. A narcissist is often motivated to plump up their public image so they can easily extend sympathy to strangers. Feeling sorry for someone places the narcissist in a position of power and allows him or her the opportunity to be the hero. And this is so true. Have you ever known a person who only surrounds themselves with people who are beneath them in their mind? They're beneath them in like social status or they're beneath them in monetary gains. They're beneath them and what they would consider appearance, you know, that was like the narcissistic thing that you would always see in like movies. It would be like the hot girl, quote, hot girl, and she would only surround herself with people less hot than her. So then she would stand out amongst the, the, the like less hot people and they would increase her hot value. Like it's a thing, let me tell you. So, um, that, that is, they say that you make a good wing person when you're, when you're less attractive than the narcissist. They won't, a narcissist will not pick three other hot people to go out to the bar with, you know, they won't do that because that, why would they put competition around them? Why would they surround themselves with competition, right? They won't. So that's just how they operate. Wow. My family sounds like it's a thunderstorm above me because they, we have rolly rollers on our dinner dining room chairs. And my kids love to like apparently iron out any wrinkles in the ceramic tile <laughs> while I record my podcast. So hopefully it doesn't pick up so bad and hopefully the music behind it uh, covers it up a bit, but it is what it is. 
So, you know, the narcissists love to do that. They love to feel like they are better than, and they will be the ones that will go, oh, like my mom used to do this stuff to me. Like, I I think I've I've alluded to it in the past where, you know, I just had a baby, you know, money's tight. You got formula, got all this stuff. You don't have to go out of the house. You don't have to do your hair, do your makeup. You don't have to dress up. So when she would come over, I would be in like my comfy clothes, like my old rippy pairs of pants and they're the most comfortable and like an old shirt because baby spit up on you. You know, I looked like a hot mess, but did I care? No. Was I going anywhere? No. But what do they do? They love to come over and point out how ugly you are and how dirty you are and how you should really buy more clothes and just didn't just you know oh but look I bought you this shirt for you because I just see how you dress these days I didn't need new clothes I didn't need I wore those clothes for a reason because one babies will jack up your good clothes why are you gonna wear your good clothes and you're not going anywhere why do you have to perform why do you have to look a presentable, you're not leaving your house. You are taking care of babies. Okay. So my mom was very much into that. And, um, so I, if they love, they love if you are struggling so that they can come in and take over that hero. They love for you to be, Oh, well, my mom, my sister said, my mom always used to do this to her. Uh, she would go, I bought, I packed my freezer full of food because I know how, how poor you are. And I know that you, um, might run out of food. So I went and I filled up my freezer. So if you need something, you just come to me. And my sister instinctively said she knew, well, one, my sister had food. And she, at the time, was getting assistance because she was in between jobs. She had no problem with food. She had the food card and she would go and get the food she needed for her and her son. And that was fine. But my mom, knowing that she had this food card and this assistance, would belittle her in a weird, condescending, covert narcissist way, would talk down in a way to make her feel less than, you know, I know you're struggling. And they do this. It's like very much like the Maria and everyone loves Raymond, you know, they they, they love to show up and try to offer you help while also berating you. Um, it's that that sneaky way to just stab you because, you know, with the covert narcissist is what I obviously have the most experience with. It's that death by a thousand cuts. So they won't just come out and go, you suck. You're poor. You're like mooching off from society. That's what you'll hear a lot in, you know, mainstream media and stuff. The peeing contest back and forth on assistance and this and that. You'll hear people being demeaned because they need extra help in some way. That those mo that's more of a um an over attack on a person, but a covert does things with a smile on their face and like a box of food, and then so they can low key take on that hero. Look, what would you do without me? What would you do without me? I am here with this beautiful box of food, and you um now bow down and tell me how amazing I am and how awesome I am to do this for you, and that's the creepiness of them. Like that's the kind of stuff they do. So totally know how this looks because my parents, um, which I don't know if it was my mom steering the whole scenario was that way because she, her brothers and sisters, my mom would lift herself up to a higher status 
um, because she would say, I didn't do drugs and I didn't drink and I didn't party. And she was, in her mind, better than her brothers and sisters who struggled with drug addiction and struggled with staying um, in a consistent job and struggled with having solid relationships and struggled with um, abusing their kids and just perpetuating the exact same life that their parents did to them, my mom would pride herself on, quote, breaking the cycle. She would go, I didn't turn out like them. I broke the cycle. No, honey, you just changed what the cycle looked like, but the cycle still stood. You didn't do everything in front of the cameras. You've been abusing your children behind the camera. You didn't break the cycle. You just changed who got to see the cycle. That's it. Because growing up, it was easy to see that my aunts and uncles were abused because my grandma is so belligerent and psycho that you, she didn't, she didn't try to hide it until she got in her older day age when she almost swapped into a covert because she used us to triangulate with. That's a whole other topic for another episode, so I won't dive into that. But she would turn into more of a covert narcissist when her grandchildren came on the scene because then she would triangulate between our mother and us. So she was super nice and sweet to us, and but while also bad-mouthing our mom. You know, so that's how we, now that I know what triangulation looks like and how she was more or less trying to pit us against our mother, which is also textbook. That's what they do. They want to pull you away and destroy any sort of relationship you have with anyone. And if you have kids, that even includes your own children. They don't care. There's no boundaries with a narcissist. So a narcissist um, will also, that the whole feeling sorry for someone, places a narcissist in a position of power and allows him or her the opportunity to be the hero, which also ex- um, explains to how my mom has swooped in and be like to my sister, here let me buy you this car here let me buy you this home and really she's just keeping my sister my sister imprisoned from the outside she looks like the hero saving her her needy daughter but from the inside she took the independence away from my sister and now has made her in complete and like completely reliant upon her unless she wants to somehow break out and start over on her own So, on the other hand, authentic empathy requires the narcissist to place themselves on an even playing field with a loved one in order to relate to that person as an equal human being, one who is entitled to his or her own uh, emotions. Unfortunately, the narcissist may be too insecure to accomplish this. Manipulation and control are typically the way a narcissist takes the power inappropriately in a relationship. And that's so true. Um, if you have uh, ever met a man or a woman that goes, whoa, it would be so awesome if we moved in with each other. Oh, look, I know you, it's really hard to struggle with one paycheck. Why don't you just move in with me? Yeah, I know you're in between jobs. You don't have to find a job. Just move in with me and they will rush the relationship, right? And you feel like this sense of hesitancy, like I just got to know this person. I really logically shouldn't move in with them, but they're so nice and they understand where I'm coming from. And what they're doing is they're just setting up their little creepy narcissist spider web and 
and they're painting it a beautiful color and they're telling you everything you need to hear. Come on in. I know how it feels to be struggling in this way. We both will have it easier, blah, blah, blah. You can clean the house while I'm at work. You can do all this stuff while I'm at work and, and you can just pay for being able to live here by uncleaning, right? And then once you get to move in, in between jobs and you move in, then you'll start to see the tables will turn. You're not doing enough. You need to do more. You need to go out and get that job right now or they're going to kick you out on the street. I've seen this happen time and time again to loved ones and to family members. Thankfully, it never happened to me in a relationship because I always had a job or two jobs, but I have dealt with overt narcissists um, in the past that I had dated. So, they did everything right up front. They were jack wagons like right up front. So it was easy to spot. But I've seen this happen. This happened to my sister. This has happened to friends where the narcissist will be like, come on in. And then once you're in, they're like, hey, hey, I hold your whole being in the palm of my hand. And they will threaten to kick you out. It will be um, an emotional roller coaster. You don't know if you're coming and going one day or the other. If you say you're going to move out, then they will all of a sudden start behaving like the victim. Oh, you're going to leave me? Look at everything I've done for you. Oh my gosh. I can't believe you're doing this. I'm going to go and tell so-and-so. I cannot believe it. I have laid my life out for you. I have opened my doors. I have offered you a place to stay. And they will turn the tails on. It was there doing this amazing thing for you. And how dare you not appreciate their amazing thing they've done for you. And it will just be such a mind screw on you. You thought you were coming in on an even playing field. Nah, -uh, honey, you're a prisoner. You walked in and you are now wearing an orange jumpsuit. And they are the warden and you must answer to them. They want you totally reliant on them so you will never leave. That's the creepy side. And that's what gets people who are in this romantic relationship. That's what gives them a mind screw. It is a huge mind screw because they look at like the person, like when you look at someone like you're physically attracted to this person who's being an absolute a-hole to you right and you're like what and how did they just change overnight well it wasn't overnight they're just really good at what they do you know they go through and they will chop off every leg to your chair until you're just sitting on the ground and you have to somehow fight your way back up to where you were that's how they have it it's so gross and it's gross, but it's what they do. It's textbook. The more you learn about it, the more you can see it and the more you can avoid it. So, um, Aaron goes on to say, unfortunately, the narcissist is too insecure to accomplish this. Manipulation and control is typically the only way the narcissist takes the power inappropriately in a relationship. So the idealization and the, devaluate, the devaluation are actually the two unconscious defense mechanisms. The idealization and, and devaluation help the narcissist unscrupulously gain control in an interpersonal relationship. The idealized or good object is a person who the narcissist puts on a pedestal. According to the narcissist, the person can do no wrong. 
The devalued object, on the other hand, the person they swapped in and out, they pick you up, your brand new supply. They go, oh, your new supply, you're yummy and delicious. I'm going to put you on the shelf. And then they go, and I'm taking this loser off the shelf. So they, if you have been placed on the shelf, they have thrown somebody off the shelf, right? They will just, we're all interchangeable to a narcissist. We're all just interchangeable. So according to the narcissist, this person can do no wrong. The devalued object on the other hand is a person who the narcissist views as the problem now. Constantly berated and blamed and excluded and ignored. The devalued or quote bad object is a narcissist scapegoat for anything and everything that goes wrong in their life. So you will hear this a lot. It will be a coworker. It will be a love relationship. Um... (laughs) There was this one lady, hi, yay, yay. I went to church uh, with this one lady and my my bad church experience. Um, she at church was like prim and proper. She was always like, oh, like a victim. Like God was just like, you know, had his thumb on her head, you know, and she would always go around and and like, I'm, I'm so sorry, I drink, I drink coffee today. I'm a bad person. Like she always acted like she was victimized, you know, at church. Well, then she went and got a job where my sister worked during the year that my sister and I were talking. Ironically, she went and got played. She got a job right where my sister worked. I like have all the places in the world. She ends up there. There her work was hiring and they hired her. So she was a totally different person at my sister's work. My sister said, and her, my sister's friend. So I knew it was true. Both had said that this lady cussed like a sailor, was belligerent, would drop, like they did like a catering thing. They would like uh, hold food for weddings and uh, serve the food for weddings. Like if she dropped something, she'd just start cussing like a sailor. And then she was constantly berating her husband, saying she's going to leave him. That all he does is take long baths and masturbates in the shower and in the bathtub and how he watches all these porn videos and all this stuff. And uh, she, so from my sister's point of view, this woman was a firecracker. She was a loose cannon. She was very belligerent. She was, um, but she, she projected all this weirdness out on her husband. So when my sister was like, yeah, we just got this new lady working with us and her name is this and her husband's this and all she does is complain about her husband and how he's evil and mean to her and he's just like this weird sex fiend and blah, 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 blah. You've come to find out that it was the same freaking lady, but she was night and day at church. Her husband was like, not that way at all. Um, now I learned that the projections are confessions, you know, so I'm like, oh, well, this lady clearly was doing all the things <laughs> she accused her husband of. It was a mind screw. It was just another layer on a bad church experience, a horrible, I will have to sit down and do a whole episode on that because it was just like, it, it just like put a lot of things into perspective for me. So And yes, I know not all churches are the same. And that is my biggest reason why I decided to focus on my relationship with my creator and not the man-made hoops and expectations and dogma, like all the check these boxes and check these boxes that humans have created, because I'm pretty darn sure that there's a lot of narcissism intertwined in that part of a relationship, you know, humans have turned uh, religion into all, all these little expectation hoops. And I'm pretty sure a lot of those were created by narcissists. (laughs) 
So <laughs> I just focus on my relationship with my creator on a personal level. And I'm not, I'm pulling away from these um, narcissistic expectations and peeing contests that man, humans, I should say, have added in to replace the relationship. They have created religion. I'm focusing on relationship and I have all done this because of my own experiences that I will get into at some point when I feel like I know how to approach the topic because it is a very lengthy layered topic. So back to my original schedule programming. Um, that was such a lesson for me was seeing how these people are polar opposite. They will lead and live an entire life in front of you while also living an entirely different life somewhere else. And it's creepy as all get out. It is so creepy to see it happen right in front of you. Um, typically many people in a narcissist inner circle begin as idealized objects, wooing them as how the narcissist reels them in. It also immediately sets the stage for his or her ability to manipulate. The tricky part about the narcissist constellation of good and bad objects is that they are constantly interchanged by the narcissist so that he or she maintains control. For example, the idealized object remains the good object as long as he or she is gratifying the narcissist's ego. I like to say that as long as they're bowing down and kissing the ring, they're doing their job. The minute they don't jump when the narcissist says jump, you're out. The next one's in. They just swap you in and out. That's it. You do not matter to them. They don't see you for who you are. They see you as who they have painted you as. You don't get to pick your identity in the life of a narcissist. They they will cast you in whatever role they see fit. If the narcissist is unhappy with the person, the narcissist immediately switches to idealizing the individual that is the devalued person. As the original idealized object falls from grace, extreme panic may set in regarding the emotional abandonment. And this is what happened when my sister, when my mom got remarried. The minute my sister got removed from the shelf and replaced with my mom's new husband, it triggered this extreme panic in my sister. And she voiced this to me with her own mouth. I'm not making this up. I'm not um, guessing or... I'm not um, pontificating like, oh, is this, this is what happened. This is what must have happened. No, she literally said this with her own mouth. It terrified her. This new person in my mom's life terrified her because she knew that she's going to have to work extra hard to compete with this man, to not be devalued. And I, I'm the type of person like, psh, gonna devalue me, bye, peace out, you know, because I don't get my value outside of me. I already know my inherent value, especially now and on a spiritual level, when you do come to be um, more of a spiritual individual, you don't look for your identity outside of you like a narcissist do. You find your identity from the one who created you. That's how I, I navigate my life. So I don't fall victim to this as much because I've always had a close relationship with my creator. It's not so easy when you are, if you are more of an atheist or if you're more of a, the, the words elude me right now. Whichever, whichever your spiritual journey is, I've said this time before, I don't, it's not my job. It's not my job to tell you what you should do. And it's not your job to tell me how I need to live. This is my, my podcast and I share my personal experience and this is my personal experience. Okay. So 
I have no expectations on you. As the original idealized object falls from grace, extreme panic may set in and regarding the emotional abandonment. In order to avoid rejection and replacement, the quote good object may be tempted to immediately make a personal sacrifice in order to please the narcissist and prove his or her loyalty. And this is exactly why my sister immediately started trashing me all over again and then did like I just was like, no, I saw it. I saw it. It was like a switch was flipped in my sister. She went from being my best friend, reuniting, reconnecting to demeaning me, cutting me down, making fun of my hairstyle, making fun of just me in general, throwing me out under the bus in front of my mom's wedding. My husband started seeing all this stuff like, whoa, what is going on here? I'm like, yeah, I'm glad it's not just me seeing it because, you know, I kind of was like, am I just being overly sensitive? Nope. It was literally happening right before my eyes. I was immediately, and this is so, this spells it out right here. This provides the narcissist with an inordinate amount of control in the relationship. My sister had to prove her loyalty to my mother to save herself in my mom's eyes by throwing me out. And that's what she had to do. And I, and like I said before, I understand this because I understand the dynamic because I've done the work. I do the work and I share the work. So this is where I'm at with that. On the opposite front, the devalued object longs to be cherished again by the narcissist. Devastated from the mistreatment, the devalued object may attempt to do everything in his or her power to regain the lost status and avoid future abandonment or rejection. He or she longs to be loved again. And that is the, the prison my sister finds herself in. She needs to be on my mom's good side because my mom is in charge of her house and her vehicle and her welfare. And she cannot sacrifice building a relationship with her sister if it means not having a place to live and not having a car to drive. And now throwing in the fact that she was immediately replaced with this new man she, she acted in a textbook fashion and I can't hold it against her. It's part of the dynamic, but you know, so I can only imagine like each one of you as a listener of my tale has your own tale. So I hope that by me expressing the patterns that I saw happening in my life in real time definitely coincides with Aaron's um, description of idealization and devaluation. Cause as I sat right here and read this and shared it with you, it, it made a situation that I felt like was really clear, even more clear. It, it just solidified what I already knew. And I've already voiced in previous episodes before I even got to this evaluation and um, idealization, devaluation and idealization. So I already in like inside had a feeling that this was exactly what was going on. And this just, you know, solidified that I knew exactly what was going on. And it makes sense to me. So I hope that you can take the time and take a little, take your little narcissist mic, like magnifying glass back and look over your experiences and see if you can see this pattern. And then it helps to, it helps to put a face to a name more or less, right? So it helps to put a name to a situation. So let's dive into my journey so far. Right now, this is my journey so far part of the show 
where I just touch base on where I'm at in my life with idealization and devaluation. I've already kind of given some examples as we read Aaron's article in Psychology Today, but these are just some additions that I've added um, that didn't really go into what the article was talking about, but when I kind of, when I kind of started to make sense. And it's really interesting how you as a victim of a narcissist, and a victim of a person with NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, it's really interesting to see how you kind of had an idea that things weren't really normal. And um, at least with me, my brain somehow, I just pick up patterns super easily. And so growing up, I intrinsically knew something was awry because the patterns that I was seeing in my mother didn't really make sense. And other people outside of my family didn't operate on the same basis. You know, I just saw this like a huge pattern. And as the years ago went on, the pattern went on. So my journey so far with this, I didn't even know it had a name. And I didn't know what I was going through had a name. So I have witnessed my mom in the past, like openly declare that she wished she had a certain kind of friend. Like humans were viewed as objects for her and I recognized this at such a young age. She would just say out loud, like we were her, we were her little support beams as kids, you know. We were her therapist, we were her dumping ground for anything and everything. And um, she would declare to us, I wish I had an Amish friend. I wish I had a black friend. I wish I had a pastor's wife as a friend. Like she would never just say, I wish I had a really good friend, regardless of their appearance, their culture or their status in life or in society. She would specifically say the type of friend she wanted. And like, <laughs> so when you think of like, a, in my opinion, a normal th process towards um, what needing a friend or wanting a friend, the qualifications would be, I want a good friend, right? I want a good friend, someone who is reciprocal of my friendship, like not a, a taker and not an over giver, but an even balance of friendship, right? Not with my mom. She literally would classify like she was shopping in a human store and going mm, yes that Amish lady over there looks like she'd make a magnificent friend for me like we're all dolls and little doll case on and then she would go as like this creepy person and like shop for her friend she didn't see humans as people with dynamic feelings and thoughts and emotions and experiences and and stuff. She only saw people as fitting into her little, you know, my life would be complete if I had this sort of a happy cloud over here and an Amish friend down here and a black friend over here. Like she literally would just shop for friends based off from her own creepy needs that I don't understand where she, they came from, right? She would never go into why this was a thing. Just 
like why she wasn't just content with how great a friendship was, but just saw people as objects. She treated fellow humans as items that she would shop for and plug in as needed once. And then once she was done with them, she would toss them and then replace them. And, you know, she would replace them if one, they weren't buying what she was selling. They weren't kissing the ring. They didn't ma- They didn't um, acknowledge her magical, wonderful nature. She would kick them to the curb and replace them with another. And I always thought it was super, extremely shallow and ignorant way to approach making friends. Even at a little girl, as a little girl, and then growing up into a teenager, and then into a moment, I never could wrap my mind around it. And then the type of person I am, I just started to like mock her. And that really pissed her off because I was always like, I was always in a rebellion of my mother. Like I just had this feeling that she was a hot mess and I was just like not buying what she was selling. So like when she would do this with our animals too, you know, if her, if an animal stopped behaving the way that she wanted them to, or they, they stopped being supplied for her, she would have them put down. So my dad and I started calling her Dr. Kevorkian and we'd be like, Oh, okay. They must, you don't like them anymore. Just take them to the vet and have them killed. You know, that's literally now makes sense why she did this. And she, and I'm, I'm convinced she would do this to people, you know, if it, cause she literally had no remorse in her behavior and she hated us calling her out on it absolutely hated us for calling her out on it but i thankfully i think one of my gifts i was given was sarcasm and a healthy sense of humor is that's why laughter is my coping mechanism and i and i didn't realize that until somebody pointed out like whoa laughter is definitely your your coping mechanism i'm like whoa i had no idea this is just how i have survived my entire life just not taking the nonsense so seriously because why? Why would I let somebody else's baggage be my baggage? It's not my baggage. I'm not going to let them put their suitcase and put my arms out and just pile on their baggage. That's not my job that I was not created to be your baggage person, right? You figure out your own baggage. As a friend, I will be there, but don't try to give me it. Don't try to make it mine. I have my own. Okay. So I looked back into my experiences with others and I like, definitely now suspect that I was also shopped for by other people that I've ran into in my life. Because <laughs> I didn't realize that at that point. Like, I now suspect I was, like, invested. I was, <laughs> I now suspect that others who were either, like, infected with um, narcissistic fleas like if they were raised by narcissists and hadn't fully realized that they had taken on the bad traits of like the people who raised them, or if I was shopped for by full-blown narcissists, that I don't know. But I have been told similar things by others that I thought were friends, but soon realized that they were also lacking depth and the ability to be reciprocal. And they were referencing me to myself. Like my mom used to tell me how she shopped for people. I have been told the same things by, quote, friends, like a friend in the past. She literally told me with her own mouth that she thought that I was sent to her as a gift from God because she prayed for a friend with kids of her age and then I appeared on a birthday. Like, I'm not a real person. I was just, like, created by God and then, like, going, oh, here she is. 
you're so amazing. I wanted to gift you a human for your birthday. And that's so freaky weird, isn't it? Isn't that a weird thought? Why would you tell someone that too? And that's how I knew that, that, that was like a red flag to me. Like one, a normal person doesn't shop for humans to fulfill little needs in their life. And two, a normal person wouldn't tell the person that they were a gift. Like that, like I didn't, I wasn't a human who just happened to show up at that day because of my own things going on in my own life. No, no, I was just fabricated for your amazingness, right? And that should have just, it already did put up red flags, but I had no idea what narcissists were. And I, but the red flags in me started to be like, hmm, this is weird. This is strange. But because I was raised by a narcissist, I was so used to putting up with a lot of strange crap. So I feel like I have put up with so much strange crap in my life because I was like trained to do it, right? The minute I shot out of my mother's and other regions, I was in training to like put up with strangeness. <laughs> and now I'm dialing myself back. And now I'm giving myself room to go, no. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> no, not taking it. Not buying what you're selling. Not kissing the ring. Sorry, not sorry. You know, like that's where I'm at. Sorry, not sorry. I'll love you from a distance, but you're a little bit, I'm not, it's not my job. I'm not, you cannot purchase me and I'm not fulfilling a role that you feel needs a, a, a just a sidekick. I'm not, I'm not that person. Find someone else who doesn't know what I know. So um, I told my husband that it definitely felt like super strange to have someone talk directly to me like I was an object that was asked for and not like I was a real person at all. So then later as time went on, I found out that my mother was a covert narcissist. And everything I started to experience with this friend also started to line up with narcissist. And that's why I said I don't know if their childhood created them as one plus the re the religion the man-made religion that um the, of the church that I was in definitely is a shame-based it was a shame-based denomination you were told you couldn't eat this you were told you couldn't wear this you were told you couldn't watch this you were told like there was so much shame-based in that particular denomination that in my heart of hearts and now knowing what I know, I feel it's like a narcissist factory because all they did was compare themselves to everyone else and then try to compete with each other on how perfect they were. And it created a very pious, a very holier than thou legalistic environment. And those are all things that are not good, right? So knowing what I know now, I thank God that I escaped this particular experience because I, my husband and I went literally no contact in the same year with this group of religious fanatics and also no contact with my narcissistic abusive mother in the same year. So I know what I know what it feels like to live through the trenches of narcissistic, covert narcissistic abuse from a large scale 
being that a smear campaign was definitely taking place and um, surviving. You can get through this. I'm going to tell you that right now. But I definitely recommend being able to laugh at some of the stuff because if you don't, you're just going to cry. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so that's been my saving grace too is my, thankfully, uh, my sense of humor because holy mother of biscuits. It, nope. <laughs> A lot of nope going on here. So this friend, quote friend at the time, started to, started to show some red flags. Uh, started to copy me, copy my hair, try to mirror me like hardcore, uh, telling, asking to take a picture of the inside of my purse, right? And me, not <laughs> me being trained to put up a strangeness. I'm like, um, okay, you know, and it's weird, right? It's weird, right? I've never in a million years would tell someone that I think that God gifted me them as a birthday gift. I would never start trying to color my hair and style it the way someone else did. And I would never ask to take a picture of somebody's purse and the outside of the purse so their husband can make them identical purse. I would never do this, but this is what was being done. And now I look back and I just feel like a little nauseous. I feel kind of like, Bleh, you know, like kind of, what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's weirding me out just reliving it right now. Um, so then, like, narc temper tantrums started to come out of this, quote, friend. Like, um, if I, if my kids were sick, like, she signed her kids up for the same classes that mine did, the extracurricular classes. She started going to the same homeschooling partnership thing that I was going to. And then she would put her kids in the same classes. And if mine didn't show up, because they were sick and I don't send my kids to school sick so they infect everybody else. Um, she would get bent out of shape and act like I was avoiding her. This is how weird it got, seriously. She would call me up and leave me evil voice messages and going, you know what, if you're not even gonna come to the class that I put my kids in so that they we could all be together, then I'm just gonna pull them out of the class. I was like, wow, my kids aren't even allowed to be sick now? Because if I don't show up, because you have an expectation, if I don't show up, you're going to just throw, do fine. I started because that's how I am. I'm like, you push me because I was also massively controlled uh, as a child, you know, as a narcissistic parent, they will control every area of your life. So I have this rebellious contrarian streak in me that I'm working with right now to, so I can reel it back into a healthy level of narcissism, of like, um, I don't want to be that narcissistic victim, you know, where I just carry the, the damage that they've done with me through the rest of my life. I, I want to get back to a healthy amount of, uh, rebellion or a healthy amount of contrary, contrarianism. Like, I feel like I have a really hard time with people trying to control me and tell me what I need to do because I'm over it. I've been, I spent like the whole first half of my life living that and I don't want to do that ever, ever. But there's also things that you need to do, you know, and that you should do. And, um, I don't want to paint everybody the, the picture or the color of a narcissist. So I'm actively, I actively spend more time analyzing, uh, situations, uh, deadlines, expectations, realistic expectations that people have on you. Like if they need you to email them at a certain time as like, as a check-in, 
I would push it to the next day because I felt like it was encroaching on me. Like it was an expectation. Like for my kids' school, if like their teachers, like I need every parent to email me by Friday at noon, I would feel like, okay, Saturday at noon, you know, like that. Is it the teacher's fault that she needs me to email her at five o'clock at noon? No. Is it something personally attacking me? No. So this is the type of thought process and self-awareness that I'm working through. So I'm just sharing this with you because I'm being vulnerable when I do this podcast to let you know that you will not just fix yourself in one day. That you will have to definitely do the work to get through and to to make sure you don't have any narcissistic fleas infesting yourself. You know, it is my goal to not be like my mom and not to be like my mom's mom. So I actively work on my self-awareness and going, are you overreacting? Let's look at the origin of this person's behavior. It's not personal. It's okay. Email them by five at noon or, you know, on noon, on Friday at noon. Okay. So that's the kind of stuff I'm working on right now. This is why this is in my journey so far, because I see the signs of in others and I know that it has damaged me along the way. So I will try my best to, um, evaluate on a case by case basis. I guess that's the way I should look at it. So because of these red flags, I'm also very reluctant to openly trust others who immediately label me as if I'm also an object to fulfill a purpose in their life instead of the person that I am, who is a dynamic and has a pulse and has souls and has dreams and aspirations. And most importantly, opinions and thoughts of their own, which narcs absolutely hate. So just because somebody places expectations on you doesn't mean you have to jump. And that's one thing I had to learn. Just because this person claims that I am their friend, a friend is more than a word friend, right? You don't just label everything a friend because they're serving you at that moment in time. You literally have to be a friend. And then in order to make a friend, you one, have to be a friend and you have to agree on what the definition of a friend is because everybody has a different definition of a friend. And to a narcissist, their definition of a friend is if you are serving me and bowing down and kissing the ring and telling me everything I want to hear, then you can be my friend. But the minute you have a different opinion, the minute you have a different thought, the minute your kids get sick and don't show up to class, you are now the villain. And that is when you will start to see the temper tantrums come out on the narcissist. That is when you're going to start to see the smear campaigns and you're going to immediately be kicked out and replaced. And that is another thing. So this concept of idealization and devaluation explains exactly what I experienced with my mom. In the past, I had shared on the show the pattern in my mom's relationship regarding my sister and I. I noticed that she treated us like objects, and I mentioned this before not knowing it had a title, that she treated us like objects that she favored or loathed, and she would interchange us accordingly. One would go up on the pedestal, and she'd punch the other one down. And then when the other one um, had a better status in life, she would swap us out. We were swapped in and out of golden child status and scapegoat status based on how our, like the status in our lives were. So when my sister got a divorce and moved home with my parents, I immediately became golden because I was married and had kids and a house of my own and a job. 
But then the minute I wouldn't, you know, jump through her expectation hoop, I wouldn't come over every Sunday for this magical dinner that she decided she wanted to do as a transaction. Because narcissists love their transactions. Um, she would go, every Sunday now I want the family to come over at this time. Well, that doesn't work. When you have kids and jobs and life going on, you don't get you don't get to tell other adults i want you here at my house at this time if it can happen great but if it doesn't happen then you're immediately kicked off the pedestal and the one that lives there is immediately put back on the pedestal you know it's so strange but it is what it is so we were swapped in and out of the golden child status based on you know the status of her life and how we you know bowed down and kissed the ring or if we didn't and i saw the pattern but never actually knew that it had this name and then part of this and unraveling and waking up from a narc induced nightmare is actually growing as you learn more about the whys and hows and all the aha moments and and the more you learn and the more you actively um try to remain self-aware and accountable to for your own behavior it all starts to make sense and i definitely think you start to heal from it so this is indeed a longer episode a lot to unpack here and i'm going to add yet another layer um, it's coming out of Reddit, and there is um, in the Reddit, Life After Narcissism. So here we go. All right, so this is all from the Life After Narcissism Reddit, and it was posted by Sad Ad. 5326 the link is in the show notes and the question is titled does taking your narcissistic ex back always mean that another cycle of idealization and devaluation and discard will start because this is part of a cycle because narcissists are so easy once you get to figure them out and you learn the terms and you learn what they look like and you learn how they're applied and you learn when they're applied and why they're applied at their intricate cycle of times like the everything is timed out perfectly it's like a domino effect with narcissists that's why they are so textbook that's why they are so easy to figure out so once you start, once you know what to look for, it, you feel so much more equipped to handle yourself. But like this poster, you can know what it looks like, but there's still this bizarre need. I think some people want to have their value seen by the narcissist because they don't want to deal with their internal realization that the narcissist never loved them for who they are. I, for some reason, can understand this that my mom throughout my entire life did not love me the way I thought she did. To me, I don't know if it's because I'm a realist. Like there's this meme out there that says, I don't know if I'm super strong or if I'm just numb. That sums up where I'm at because I don't know how I can swallow that realization that my mom did not love me the way I thought she did my entire life that I was she was just mirroring me and using me as supply or am I just numb <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet so <laughs> I'll get back with you 
but I think that's what happens. And that's where I feel like this, uh, this poster, as I get into it, you're going to start to see and ask yourself why, why the need to go back. So here we go. The poster says right now, my narcissist, my narcissistic ex is making grandiose and overwhelming declarations of remorse and change. Now I'm wondering. So what they're doing is they're hoovering and they're love bombing. They have been discarded. And now the narcissistic ex, the, the narcissistic ex was kicked to the curb. And now because of bad behavior and how they were treating the person. So now the, the poster says, now I'm wondering if I do take him back, is this going to result in another cycle of idealization, devaluization, and then the discord? Is there really no other outcome? Don't get me wrong. I've educated myself on narcissism, but I'm just wondering if there really is no other outcome than this horrible cycle. Admits these big apologies, I feel really pressured into not disappointing him because I'm afraid that it will start the, the cycle again of idealization, devaluation, and discard. And yes, it will start over again. But from what my experience is and from watching it happen out in other relationships around me now, knowing what I know, it happens at a faster rate. It's weird. That's, that's just something I've know I've noticed that the cycle is sped up. So it may have taken a while because you guys were totally new, right? You were new supply. The narcissist knew you were new supply. It was amazing. And then all of a sudden you hit a wall and then they discard you or you wisened up and saw what they were and kicked them to the curb. Well then if you tried to meet back up, you will run into the same exact cycle, but it will be faster because you're not strangers anymore. You got each other's number. They got you figured out, you got them figured out, and it's going to go faster. And let's be honest, the original poster just, they're answering their own question. It, they, they said, admits these big apologies. I feel really pressured. I feel really pressured. Let that word, let that phrase sink into you and not disappointing him, Right. That's it. A lot of abuse victims feel pressured into not performing under the weight of their abuser's expectations. It is clear as day. And that is where you need to, that is where you need to pull. Yes, the cycle will happen again, but you have to ask yourself, why in the hell would I go back in the trenches again? If nothing good came out of my first trip into the trench, and I know damn well nothing good is going to come out of my second visit in the trench, why are you even looking at getting back in the trench in the first place? If not because expectations have been placed on you by your abuser and you know it and you are struggling with the people-pleasing side of being a victim. You don't want to disappoint your abuser. So what? You're going to bend over, grab your ankles and take another one? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. We're not doing it again. Do not get back in the trenches. They literally said, I educated myself. They are arguing with their common sense side of them. We instinctually know, just like when we're watching a horror movie, I don't watch them, but I've seen like the memes, 
don't go into the dog basement. You know, like I have watched like suspenseful movies where you know that even on my Hallmark movies and mysteries, because that's about as, as suspenseful as I can get, as you know, like one, why are you not locking your doors, right? Let's let's turn this into a learning experience. Lock your doors, people. Lock your relationship doors. Once you've kicked the narcissist out of your relationship house, lock the door. Lock the door. And then if they show up on the outside and they give you sad puppy dog eyes, close the curtain. Close the curtain. Do not open up the door and go, hi, can I help you? Because no, no, honey, you should be helping yourself out of Dodge. Get the hell out of Dodge and don't go back into the trench. But so this is my opinion. But let's see what some Redditors had to say. Antagonista analogy said, yes, as far as I'm aware, there is no other outcome. NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, does not have a cure and therapy often serves only to provide them with an additional tool set to use against the dirt against you during the devaluation phase. And then Twisted Red said, have seen that therapy provides additional tool set in action on more than one occasion. It's really unfortunate. And then Antagonista Analogies replied, I'm in therapy now and it's a little disconcerting to see my therapist using methods that my ex-narc boss weaponized against me. It's not her fault. It's in a therapeutic setting. It's appropriate. But man, I didn't miss the long pauses. He used to stare at me and have these long, uncomfortable pauses and ask me about my feelings or more often tell me how I felt. And in any information extracted could and would be used against me. I was It was really gross and inappropriate from an employer, but I was so addled by all of his crazy making, I didn't know what to do. I used to jokingly call him my therapist. Yes, I said that to him. He seemed proud. And then impossible... Um, Impossible Case said, I just wasted another six years giving into his, quote, I'm so sorry, I'm a changed man BS. It's only gotten worse. And Cardinal Peeves said, same here. It started with, I'm sorry, I'll change. One After one month, we were right back to, you're wrong, you need to change. And then came the jokes about, hey, remember when you went cuckoo and thought you wanted to break up with me? Ha ha, that was crazy, right? God, I wish I had put my foot down the first time, they said. Um, so then Candy Cane said, they are incapable of ever changing, in caps. And Sad Ad said, I'm sorry to hear this. I hope it won't happen to you again. And thanks for sharing. And Clean Association said, if the declarations are grandiose and declarations of remorse and change, it's part of the old routine. I suppose genuine growth is possible, but it wouldn't look like that. It would look like humility and listening and respecting your boundaries. Yep, 100%. And Black Rose replied, Yes, it is ingrained in their behavior and it won't change. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a change. Have and read this. If you find yourself gasping at this, then I think you have your answer. Oh, okay. So let's take a, let's take a side trip over to this person's article that they shared just so that we can have a nice ending. This is off from abc.net.australia. 
in an article titled From Love Bombing to Isolation, the red flags for coercive control can be dangerously difficult to spot before abuse escalates. So this is a story, it looks like. So it is quite lengthy. I will put the link to it in the show notes because I've already made a lengthy show or I might keep it for another episode. Maybe we'll do that or a follow-up episode. Maybe we'll do that. But I think I'm just going to put it in the show notes for now. So you can find it there. I just did it like right now. So you'll be able to find it in there from love bombing to isolation. All right. So I think they, they go on to say this part especially. Um, and this, so they copied and pasted a part of the story. Perpetuators, like perpetuators, perpetrators, I guess they're one of the same, are also very good at feigning emotions they do not feel exactly. Those capable of causing pain to others are extraordinarily adept at cognitive empathy. That that is so true. The narcissist, they're not stupid. They know that they have to butter up the biscuit before they can eat it. That's just what they do. They know that they're not going to be able to just eat the biscuit without some butter. So they will put out a little bit, the bare minimum of empathy or understanding as long as then they can just bust the door down and take over. Like that's what they do. That is textbook. Those capable of causing pain to others are extraordinarily adept at cognitive empathy, the ability to recognize and intuit emotions and manipulating them. They often lack emotional empathy, the ability to feel or care about the pain that they are causing. This cycle is crazy making for victims who believe the love is genuine because the emotional manipulation, the intense flips from love to hate is so extreme. So the dynamic becomes one in which the victim desperately wants the person they fell in love with to return while the perpetrator starts to devaluating them and devaluing them and setting up a benchmark of perfection for the victim that is impossible to attain. And yep, that is very, very true. And then it's also added, I really appreciate the distinction, cognitive empathy versus emotional empathy. I don't know if I find the terms quite right, but I definitely appreciate being able to put a finger on that distinct difference. So, um, yep, it's, it's the same thing. The love is always fake. The hate is their primary emotion and it is the underlying of everything. So, I mean, I see this happening time and time again is people struggle with the idea of the person that they shared their life with. It's easy to do that because they trick you. They mirror you. They turn into you. And that's why your relationship with them was so amazing is because they were mirroring you the entire time until it was time to strike, until it was time to break you down and imprison you in their abuse. So therefore you are, you are stuck loving the idea and the beginning of your relationship while also trying to survive the reality and the ending part of the relationship. But it, if there's one thing that I know is that this cycle, it, it does exist. It will not change. And I have seen it actually pick up speed. And the more and more and more you invite that narcissist back in, the faster the cycle begins, the faster the discard begins. And the, and it's just like the crocodile spinning, grabs its prey, drags it underwater and spins until you are just so emotionally and physically drained that you won't fight back and you won't try to leave. That's their goal. They want to feast on you forever and then replace you. So sounds lovely, doesn't it? Sounds just delightful. 
All right, so I hope we've unpacked a lot for everyone to kind of go through. And um, my, my chair's creaking in an unprofessional manner. And that is time we're going to head into closing. Let's go. All right, in closing, I hope each episode I record helps someone else. And also, to be honest, myself, every time I record an episode, I learn something new. Um, who may be going through a similar situation or know someone who has. It can be very discouraging to many because they feel guilty for airing the dirty deeds done by others. But as survivors, we should never feel shamed into silence. I would also like to add that I personally feel it is very important for us to not take on the identity of what is being what is being done to us and what has been done to us, but instead identify as a person who is overcoming what was done to us as we grow closer to our true self and not the victim role our abuser wants us to be imprisoned in. We don't want to become the same monster we are trying to heal from. If you have a story of your own that you would like to share, you can email the show at Iwasornswoggled at gmail.com. You can tweet the show on Twitter at hornswogglepod. Um, and you can head to hornswogglepodcast.com to leave a voicemail message, find the show notes, and listen to past episodes. Until next time, have a blessed day. Bye. <laughs>